Welcome to Sports and Society episode 51. Kyle, you're coming to us from uh, across the pond, so to speak, today, aren't you? I am. I am in the land of hurling, Gaelic football, and rugby. Exclusively. <laughs> I, I swear, I don't even know if they pay attention to other sports that are happening in the world. I haven't seen any evidence of it yet. Well, it's, uh, in some ways, it's rather similar to the U.S. in terms of their insular sports culture. I mean, like they play rugby, which is obviously international, but um, and they play soccer, but it's not nearly as big as you might think as close as they are to England, is it? No, I don't think so at all, from my impression. And most of the Irish folks I've met, not just while I'm here, but just in general, um, are more than happy to talk about soccer, but it's not the first thing on their list in any way whatsoever. Um, but I, I have been impressed, I, I guess, just with the fervor of rugby that, and how closely it's followed. So I've struck up a couple conversations about it, and it's uh, it seems to be just really important from the folks I've talked to about it, uh, in addition to their personal sports that no one else really plays, being hurling and Gaelic football. I find rugby really interesting, um, A, because there's no, you know, as violent as it is in everything, there's no, I don't think, better sport for uh, just the force of will mattering um, in a sport. Uh, but also, like, internationally, I think I'm intrigued by the fact that, yes, the um, World Cup brings in the – South Americans, but the rugby it brings in the South Africans and the uh, Pacific Islanders in a way that no other sport does, and I think that's a that's a really interesting phenomenon. Something that I re- always enjoy when the Rugby World Cup comes around. I agree. The geographic reach of rugby is significant and unique in some extent, in some ways. Well, you've been away from the American sports scene here. Do you still read uh, ESPN when you're over there? I do. I, I still check in with it just out of habit, I think. Um, <laughs> but I have been paying attention to the Irish Times coverage of stuff. And hmm. uh, the front page of the Irish Times was a mugshot of Tiger Woods, probably 12 inches by 8 inches. Hmm. I was like... Gosh, man, if he's landing on the Irish Times, he must be all over the world today. But, I mean, indeed, golf matters here quite a bit. But still, uh, I don't know. What do you make of the Tiger Woods event and then the story? Um, the Tiger Woods event, is it's just sad in many ways to me. Like, I think, um, uh, you know, that's my general response to Tiger these days is just, a sense of deep sorrow uh, in terms of the demons that he seems to carry. Uh, And I just, I just want the guy to get well at this point. Um, In this situation, it's just like it came out. I don't know who do I hold responsible, whether I hold the police responsible for the way that they allowed this to be reported or whether I hold the media responsible for reporting this way or whether I hold us responsible for demanding this 24-hour media where this is always going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm with, I'm with you. I was overwhelmed by the, the extent of the coverage, 
seemed somewhat absurd to me, but then ESPN has had a tiger tracker now for like 20 years. Uh, when you go to their golf homepage, there's like eight tabs you can click on, and one of them is Tiger. Uh, so he's lived his life, you know, in in a spotlight that few athletes or few humans, like in the history of the world, have ever lived in, because he kind of coincided with the explosion of online media. Um, mm. So I, I was thinking about that when I saw that photo. That was the first thing that popped in my mind. The second thing that came to me was. I think our very first episode was on injuries. Is that right? It was one of the first. I don't, I don't remember what the first yeah. one was. But, you know. It was early on we talked about the role of injuries in sport. And uh, to me, that like that struck me and stuck out to me that uh, in, in a sport where you don't think about injuries like you do in other sports, here you have someone whose entire life, which was – so large and so grandiose for so long still hinged on his body and it was it was all all the hedge bets were about what tiger's wood body was capable of and i think we lost sight of that and now that his body is failing him it seems that his life's falling apart alongside it um that's a hyperbolic statement i don't think his life's falling apart but his life has changed drastically because of a bad back uh, and a bad knee and whatever else we don't know about. So I was thinking about the role of injury as well. Um, but then mm-hmm. as serious as DUIs are, it also too, I'm like, you know, I'm like, what were these, what was this police station thinking? Uh, <laughs> like surely Jupiter, Florida is a pretty insular little community of multimillionaires. I, I, I I just but had questions about that. There's this whole, it's a weird thing now I'm sitting down thinking about it in terms of like the first coverage was DUI. Uh, so we were all like, Tiger's been drinking, his life is falling apart, he's been busted drinking. Uh, then it came out that no, actually it wasn't alcohol. It was a, a mixture of pills that didn't work very well together. Um, and so everybody's like, oh, wait a minute, let's take a step back. And then the police department, like the next day released the dash cam footage of him. So it's almost like they were like, whoa, 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 don't be too nice to this guy. Let's let's reiterate that he needs to be punished for this, um, which, you know, I agree. He shouldn't have been driving, but, I mean, come on. Be, we need to be respectful of who this guy is, and, um, yes, he needs to be held responsible, but this, is, this has uh, repercussions that are much larger than it would be for a normal person. Right. Yeah, I'm with you though. I, I, my ultimate takeaway is one of like just kind of I'm. I'm just. It's a bummer. <laughs> I, I don't want to be watching it. It's. It's just. It's unfortunate, and I land on sorrow like you do. Uh, well, I'm, before we get too far into this, I did want to um, ask you before I forget. Um, just what the mood is like over there after what happened in London yesterday. Yeah. I'm, I'm not in a major city uh, and I'm in a very rural environment, not around many people, but the news coverage again, the Irish times and the BBC is anyone can check, but um, is flooded with the news. Um, So I don't know if I can speak for the mood as I haven't talked to many human beings, but, um, 
it, it was, I can just say it was shocking to me, the location of it, the geography of it, um, it stru struck me quite a bit, but, um, I mean, the, the news coverage obviously has been flooded with it. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, stay safe over there, my friend. Indeed. Um, well, we can stay on hate to some degree, I suppose, and denounce these uh, terrorists and also denounce the incredible bullshit that's happening with LeBron James uh, and his house in Los Angeles. Uh, I hate yeah, to draw a connection between those two, but I'm also not that uncomfortable drawing a connection between those two. No, I think it's an important connection, and to introduce it that way, I think hints at the significance of it all. Um, I definitely, any media on the left that I'm reading is uh, harping on any chance they get to point out that in a Trump era, this is becoming normalized. Uh, I think there's a little bit more complexity when you put it in a historical context than that. Um, however, I'm not dismissing any of it in any way whatsoever, but um, I, I was most struck by his comments um, in, in that, uh, well, I was struck by his comments and then I was struck even more by the comments of Andre Iguodala. Did you catch that? Um, I did not, no. He gave kind of this really coy, reserved, very protected interview and in which he was referencing that <clears throat> anytime that he talks about something controversial, he gets fined. But he was saying how he raises his son to be able to live in two worlds, uh, implying that there is like a, a black culture and then there is a non-black culture and his son needs to know how to exist in both. And my takeaway from his interview and LeBron's comments were uh, a, a reminder to the white world that yeah, it's cool that y'all think everything's great, but we live in a world that's filled with hate every single day. Y'all just don't have to see it. It's. I I agree with you about the complexity, and again, not to diminish it, but I am a little tired of media outlets on the left talking about this normalizing when I want to see numbers before I start to do anything else. I do think... Mm -hmm. I just, I don't want to build a narrative that's not there. I think that's perhaps even more dangerous than ignoring the narrative. Not more dangerous, but equally dangerous. Um, but it, it's just, it saddens me to see this. And it's just, every time we see this, I feel like we, um, it, it makes me I can never understand the anger and frustration that would be caused or by growing up in this uh, unequal world that we live in, uh, being privileged on every front. Um, but I think that these kind of things, uh, we have to use them to serve to remind ourselves that these things happen all the time. And we see them when they happen to these big names, but they're happening all the time, everywhere. I don't know if you saw what happened in Charlottesville a few weeks ago, but I mean, it was just abysmal. Um, what freaking, happened? They freaking, they showed up in a downtown park 
uh, with torches and oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Claimed it wasn't about racism or something along those lines. It's just, it's, uh, it leaves me just struggling to figure out where to go next. And I don't have any answers in that really, uh, it really upsets me. Mm-hmm. His, his statement too is it was, I feel like he deserves just so much credit and I've been a LeBron defender now for a really long time. And I think one can get on him about the personality he creates for himself around his basketball, but I'm willing and maybe I'm like exploring this idea of that. If we accept LeBron James as a cultural icon, then we can start to discuss him more and more and more outside of basketball. And I feel like that he is creating that image for himself of one that is wanting to and capable of and ready to comment on world affairs and uh, social issues and economic issues. And I, I think there's a certain amount of bravery maybe associated with him coming out and saying like, yeah, it's hard to be black. Uh, because he, he knows and everyone else knows that uh, a lot of white conservatives are going to jump on that and say, yeah, but you're a millionaire, so what right do you have? Um, and so for me, I, I think it's just kind of um, – he knows he's alienating people when he's saying that, but he's saying it anyways. And so I'm just thinking of like the O.J. Simpson documentary of like O.J. was never willing to say something like that. So I'm not calling LeBron Muhammad Ali but or Colin Kaepernick, but I'm saying that he's he's on that side of things. I agree. And I'm there was a statement I didn't even read the article because I didn't need to don't need any more Jordan uh LeBron comparisons in my life right now. Um, yeah. but there was a statement about uh, LeBron may not be the greatest basketball or better basketball player than Jordan, but he's certainly uh, a better person. Mm-hmm. And it, it struck me. I think I'm willing to believe that it is. And I think what I'm really looking forward to is when he's not playing anymore. And I think I will have a much bigger appreciation for the man. Cause I think he'll be much more willing to make statements at that point. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, but I think, I feel like he's holding back a lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to see him, you know, run for governor of Ohio or something like that. I think that would be, uh, you know, I don't know what his politics are really, but I think that would be a transformative gesture on some level to be to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just had an overwhelming sense, and it wasn't even LeBron or Tiger or anything else. It was actually before that, but. Last week, I just had a moment when I was just listening to an interview with him or something, and I was, I was just thinking of, gosh, like you know, people that are in the spotlight as often as LeBron are take so much crap, and just how much credit they get for not royally screwing up. Mm-hmm. Like if if you make it twenty years in the spotlight, like you deserve a ton of credit. <laughs> for, for not just being a complete like failure uh, in, in the eyes of the media. Uh, I mean, 
when 5 billion people on this planet know who you are and you can make it 20 years without those 5 billion people hating you, like you've done something pretty, <laughs> pretty significant. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that just is worth mentioning. Uh, well, I'd like to use another uh, transition here to talk about one of the other most hated players of sports in the world and Cristiano Ronaldo and offer mm -hmm. him congratulations on uh, another Champions League yesterday. Mm -hmm. And he gave an interview right before the match too where he talked about how – because he, he re-signed with Real, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's what the interview was about. And the, or the interview and the article associated with it were saying that uh, – or quoting him expressing that he doesn't understand why he gets whistles at home. Like what? What other person could score 108 goals in a season and get booed and whistled at home uh, than someone like him? But he's he somehow pulls it off. That even his own fans hate him, and he just won them two Champions Leagues in a row for the first time ever. Um, it is like in I think LeBron does everything right for people not to hate him. Uh, mm -hmm. And people like myself still find him, for whatever reason, not our favorite player. Mm -hmm. Cristiano, on the other hand, um, like the guy clearly, I think you could argue, brings it on himself to some degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, like his, his commentary after the game was, I don't need to defend myself. The numbers speak for themselves, which mm -hmm. they do. But that's just like take that moment to thank your teammates. Don't talk about your historical numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently too, another article I read about him was talking about the role that Zidane is playing in his life. Mm -hmm. And that Zidane is the one that's trying to pull him back on the goal scoring and saying like, you don't have to be so obsessed with goal scoring. You know, you can just play for your team and you can play for trophies. You don't have to win every individual record every year. Um, it made me want to read a little bit more about his upbringing what his childhood was like which I'm kind of ignorant of Is it, I don't have such mixed feelings about him that come largely due to his time at Manchester United and me really not liking Manchester United um, <laughs> that time. But, but the team was fun to hate in that era they sure were. I mean, and they had all the right people for you to dislike. I mean, mm -hmm. Patrice Evra, who just ate it up, wanted every bit of it, and Paul Scholes, who yeah. never seemed to desire to learn how to make a tackle and was just waiting to piss off the opposing team. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and Ryan Giggs, who played forever. Rooney, who – no one knows what to think about Rooney in this world, do they? I don't think so. I don't think he – I think he's just like separated himself from reality. He lives <laughs> in some alternate Rooney universe. It's a really goofy world. Uh, I don't know that I've ever had chance to share this on here, but what I want you to guess who my favorite England player in the last 20 years has been. Your favorite England player in the last 20 years. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool question. Um, Rio Ferdinand. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It's not Rio and it's not John Terry. 
Uh, I'm trying to make think of who from Arsenal was in the national side. Well, no, he never played for Arsenal. This is, I, I would describe him as the greatest what if of English football in the last 20 years. Who is it? Joe Cole. Oh, yeah. He had a little moment, didn't he? He really like got flashed in the plan. He scored a couple big goals and then disappeared, didn't he? Well, he was like the the one England player that I think of during my time that played with like the kind of panache that I would love the England team to play with on a regular basis. He did he play like out outside back defender? Uh, he usually on the wing, some too. He was on the wing, usually central midfielder and wing. I think usually. Yeah, but I can I compare him to the U.S. with uh, Benny Failhaber. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Benny has had like several games for the U.S. where he was like just the one thing that you hadn't seen a U.S. team have before. Yeah, he like, hasn't been good enough to be that guy all the time. Yeah, yeah, that guy's supremely talented. He, he might be one of our most naturally just gifted players. I would argue. <sighs> anyway, that's totally off topic, but I felt the need to give a shout out to Joe Cole there. Yeah. Um, do you think Colin Kaepernick is being blackballed? Oh, man, I have uh, no good answer to this. Um, mm-hmm. My gut reaction is to say no, but um, I think there is probably some element of it involved. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that he there's a chance he wouldn't have gotten signed anyway because he hasn't been very good the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also, I think, we've seen that these quarterbacks often get more shots than we think they should get. Um, mm-hmm. And But I, if that's the case, I would suggest that there were there are people being so blackballed all the time for not fitting in on teams. Um and I think that this is just this is a particularly poignant example because uh, his the reason he wouldn't fit in is specifically racially and uh, socially motivated. Right. Leo yeah, McCoy. I think. Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say. Uh, I think there was a consensus in the NFL that Vinny Testaverde was a terrible human being, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, he was good enough to start, but as soon as he became a backup, I don't think anybody wanted him anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that's like, Con Kaepernick is not a terrible person. He's better than just about everybody else in the NFL. But I think that there's a comparison to be made in that situation. Right. Yeah. I think if one, I think if one is looking for an NFL organization to be an act, a political and social activist organization, it's not going to happen. And to some extent, bringing Kaepernick onto your team is going to be construed that way. And I don't think any NFL program is excited to take on that title. Um, however, I do think like from another perspective is there's plenty of evidence that the oligarchy of the NFL has probably had meetings where they sat down and discussed this and maybe Hmm. they didn't say it in an overt fashion, but maybe they did. (laughs) 
And when you look at who and what those men are and what they have been in their lives, I think there's plenty of evidence to say that, yeah, I, I don't think they're members of racist organizations that are like burning torches, but I think these men exist from a, a, a bygone era in which upholding institutional racism was seen as like a patriotic act. And so in that way, I, I think there's plenty of evidence to to point to it being a thing. Um, but it, that's all conjecture. You know, like we don't we don't know. We don't have that information. So it's just conjecture. So, again, a slightly thing, a slight thing. I've been a little frustrated with uh, my liberal media outlets <laughs> is that they're they're making the link between these guys voted for Trump and that's why they're not hiring Colin Kaepernick and that's just conjecture. We don't know that. Like we, we can create that narrative if we want, but I don't think we have enough information to say that. Hey, I, I, I've been frustrated by the same stuff on the left recently and it's uh, like, there just doesn't, I think this is just the age that we live in, but so many people seem willing to buy these narratives that are so thrown to us that I find it that to be the most troubling part, not necessarily even that they're created. Um, right. Much. We seem to want to believe them once they've been created. Right. I will say one thing that is not, well, one side of this situation is like this in terms of there's a very conservative woman in Australia who is seeing attacks and narratives everywhere that don't exist. Um, but a very real complaint uh, from the left is against Margaret Court um, and her stance on uh, homosexual and LGBTQ plus issues in Australia. Are, so are you familiar with Margaret Court? No, so tell me what's going on. So she, um, I think she uh, used to or... Um, until recently held the record for most majors ever by a female tennis player. Mm -hmm. um, the, one, of the, one of the big courts in Melbourne is named after her, which on some level is great to be named after a woman. I think that's a very forward thinking thing. Um, but she has become a born again Christian and uh, is spouting a great deal of racist uh, not racist necessarily, but I'm sure that too, um, sexist and homosexual abuse about uh, how many lesbians there are on tour uh, and how unnatural and how terrible that is and about how she's worried about the kids and um, all of this mumbo jumbo and has recently come out claiming that there's an American gay lobby that's trying to, to uh, take her under. Wow. And so there have been a number of players as headlined as you might expect by people like Martina Navratilova calling for that court to be renamed uh, at the Australian open site. Mm -hmm. How old is she? Oh, it's been quite a deal. Um, she's fairly old. I, mm -hmm. I want to say 70. Um, okay. Let's see here. 42, uh, which means she is 74 now. Hmm. She won 24 titles 
um, 24 majors or yeah, grand slams, whatever they call them in the tennis world. Are they going to rename the court? I sh- it sure looks that way. Hmm. Um, I want to. I'm trying to pull up a list of the number of people that have complained about Margaret her comments. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a long one. Which it's really interesting because it's coming on the back of I don't know if you saw uh, the news coverage about the tennis player that was kicked out of the French Open for trying to kiss the female reporter in an interview after a match. No, I missed that too. Uh, yeah, so he's been uh, removed from the tournament. Um, wow. Was it a, a lesser-known guy? It was a lesser-known guy. It's it's an interesting thing because th- he gave – the apology that he gave, I think, is the most interesting part of it. Um, he essentially just said, I'm a passionate guy, and I'm sorry that uh, what I did was offensive in that moment. It's just like, come on, man. You just don't get it. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty pretty clueless. Uh, but anyway, the tennis world is dealing with some real issues right now, I think you could say. Yeah, they have a lot of decisions to make here in the next couple of years about what route they want to go with, <laughs> kind of their where they stand uh outside of just their four majors, which they've been obsessed with the last 20 years. I think there's a lot more going on than tennis than just those four majors. It's just those were what made money for tennis. But that seems to be all anybody cares about these days, yeah. Yeah. It's only eight weeks out of the year, so they got more stuff going on. I wonder how long it will be before you have somebody like Lance Armstrong. Uh, so Lance is kind of famous in the cycling world for not caring about anything other than the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would not um, – he would essentially race like three races a year, all of them focused on that one getting prepared for the Tour de France, which I think was in the end really harmful – for the greater cycling world, not just because of what he did later, but um, yeah. Right. So how long until somebody just, uh, just plays in the tennis majors? Yep. I could see Serena doing that when she, a couple more years. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's part of the thing is all of their contracts are tied up that they got to play a certain amount of matches um, or show up at a certain amount of events. So, uh, I think that's what the players have been so upset about for the last 10 years is they've been talking about how grueling their season is, especially if you're a top player and you're making it to the quarters and semis and finals of every tournament. Hmm. You're just playing so much tennis. But Yeah. Well, go ahead. Tell me what's going on in cycling world. Well, before we get to that, let me ask you three um, quick fire questions here. All right. Okay. Uh, NBA Finals, what's your prediction? Uh, Warriors in five. Uh, same here. I was saying six. I now think five. Yeah. Um, their defense was so bad. Um, yeah. Um, will you watch if Conor McGregor fights Floyd Mayweather? No. Will you? Um, no, but I will watch. I will be intrigued to see what the highlights are the next day. 
if only from a sense of perverse, uh, I want it to just be a complete disaster. Does he really think he's going to box Floyd Mayweather? I don't know. I think Dana White really thinks it's going to happen, but I don't know that McGregor actually thinks it's going to happen. And I think McGregor doesn't really care. I think Dana White's the one that cares. I mean, anyone that thinks this is anything more than just promotion, I mean, (laughs) I don't get it. If I were a journalist and my boss came to me and said, we're going to write on Mayweather and McGregor today, I would like quit my job. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage these two (laughs) egomaniacs. Sorry. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but no, okay, so that makes me kind of want to watch. Like, if he thinks he's really going to box the greatest boxer of all time, like, <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. I'll watch that 12-second fight. All right, and last question for you. Uh, what's your uh, biggest thought uh, about Frank DeFord? How much I'm going to miss his stories and how much the uh, – the sports world is warranted in taking a moment and saying or, or recognizing how much of a landmark and significant figure he was in sports coverage. As in, I don't think Frank DeFord even really liked sports all that much. And I told someone this week that Frank DeFord was never tempted by what we would call clickbait. Uh, I don't think any of his story headlines or his stories were of a nature that said, like, please read my story or please click on my story. But I think his, the narratives he created, the way in which he approached athletes as humans and the way uh, it, it, was, um, it was educational to read a Frank DeFord piece. Uh, uh, I'm... I I was really upset when he died. I was like, gosh, that's a significant voice. It's not going to be around anymore. He was he was his own thing, and uh, I think um, I, I I read a, I read about him dying, and then I followed it up with um, uh, Danny Alves wrote a piece for the Players Tribune. I don't know if you saw it. Mm. And I was thinking how much I like the Players Tribune. Uh, and I was like, this would not really exist, I don't think, without Frank DeFord. I think he kind of created this idea that the, there are stories here that we don't really understand or appreciate. Uh, so that was not a quick-fire answer, but uh, what do you think of him? Um, uh, he was the greatest sports journalist of our time, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I when I I anticipated his stories on NPR every week and mm-hmm. he was just phenomenal. He re, I think he, and, um, Oh gosh, what was the guy that used to do the rest of the story? Oh, uh, uh, I just, I can't pull it. Uh, anyway, the, those two guys, um, or Paul Harvey. There we go. Paul Harvey. Um, I had Harvey. I didn't have the first name. Yep. Yes. So uh, Paul Harvey and um, Frank DeFord, I think, were the two people that like were most influential for encouraging me to think beyond 
mm-hmm. what we see in the media every day that they were the first people like i think they were the people that um uh, like made me want to read long form journalism more broadly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah my my path was frank deford and then dan jenkins uh and then bill simmons early bill, bill simmons stuff hmm. um but all three of them together, like, I feel like gave me permission <laughs> to talk about things that I was thinking about. Uh, that I, I felt validated by being a sports fan whenever I read their stuff. So I think um, a lot of the work I've been doing for my, uh, the way I think about the actual work that I do, uh, I've been contemplating a lot recently, the concept of human-centered design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what came through for me and Frank DeFord and these other folks is that these are people that took the sports or took anything in their life and really made it about the people that were doing those things. Uh, mm-hmm. And so instead of focusing on the thing itself, they focused on the people. And I think that that's, uh, that's really powerful uh, and needs mm-hmm. to be something we do more often. And not only that, Concentrate on the people as really complex characters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that should be given benefit of the doubt every time and should be understood as being uh, not one dimensional and not even three dimensional, but like multi multi dimensional uh, uh, creatures. Um, and so much of the media wouldn't prefer otherwise. So it was always just so pleasant and affirming. Yeah, it was a big deal for me that he died. Yeah. Well, uh, you'll be missed, Frank. So. Indeed. All right. What do you want to hear about cycling? Yeah, it was cool. Uh, well, so I don't think we did this last week, did we? We don't. We, did we didn't have a podcast. Yeah. So, uh, in the meantime, Tom Dumoulin has won the Giro d'Italia, uh, which is kind of a big deal. It kind of was unexpected in that. Um, it was a great race that he won on the last day on a time trial, um, and it's uh, it's really fascinating because it raises all these questions um, of what uh, whether this guy's for real whether it was just a great week three weeks for him uh, what does this mean moving forward for some of the other guys that were involved you know I, I think it's exciting when we get to see like people uh, close to their primes going up against one another but we you, know, you never see people right at their prime uh, and so it's I think it's fascinating to see these folks, uh, like, is is Quintana ebbing at this point? Um, uh, also, it was a huge thing for the Dutch. This was the first time a Dutch rider who take this sport really seriously. Uh, first time they had won a Grand Tour since, I think, 1980. So that's huge. Oh, wow. Um, but it's been uh, – it was a fascinating race. Uh, one of the first races I've seen in a long time where, like, the um, – the guys that were, were the best climbers and were competing against the guy that was the best time trialer uh, and trying to – that so it was really well balanced. I think in the end, the margin of victory was like less than 30 seconds. Oh, cool. Um, uh, 
Um, but it's been fascinating. That all, of course, leads into the run-up to the Tour de France. Uh, and then there's been a really interesting race the past three days, first time ever, a race called the Hammer Series, which was formed by a group of clubs um, or teams that have been really pushing the boundaries of how the media can play into this. And so they have been the ones putting cameras on bikes and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was essentially a points race on the road. Um, and so really fascinating. And so it finished this morning with um, essentially a team trim trial where the teams that had the most points got in a few seconds advantage at the beginning. Um, uh-huh except that they were all on the road at the same time and whoever got to the end first wins. Um, (laughs) And so it wound up like two four-person teams sprinting against each other to see who could get their first fourth person across the line first on time trial bikes. It was, uh, it was a fascinating event and I'm, uh, it was really hard to understand, I think for non cycling fans, even for me Uh as a cycling fan, but at the same time, it's the kind of thing that uh, excites me moving forward. Do you think it'll be legitimized or will it be a sideshow thing? Um, it'll probably always be a bit of a sideshow, but I think it'll be, I think the writers really enjoyed it. And so I think that's the key uh, that'll make it a sustainable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, they talked about um so the the two days of racing were only like 50 kilometers each um and yet they had people uh, being distance in the first 10 kilometers because it was they were going so hard right from the very beginning uh, mm-hmm. which i think is really fun for a lot of folks to watch so mm-hmm. anyway it's uh it's an exciting time as we come up to the tour de france and i just hope it's not going to be as boring as it has been in years past Yeah, I guess they start in what three weeks? Uh, so four, four, two and a half, that? something like that. Yeah, yeah three yeah. weeks. But how about you? What's up in the in the cricket world? Well, I was thinking about this idea of legitimized versus institution or um, sideshow, and the Champions Trophy, as it is called, is happening right now. And it's the second biggest tournament in the world behind the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And uh, the eight top ODI teams get invited. And it happens every two years. And so it's kind of a mini World Cup, actually, is what it is. And the fans go nuts for it. Uh, every match sells out. It, um, I think the other night... Uh, like something like 600 million people <laughs> watched one of the matches, uh, Bangladesh mm-hmm. versus India. And so, I mean, just massive, massive viewership. But it's interesting because it's relatively new. It didn't start until the mid-90s. And in, uh, I guess it was like 2015, 14, they announced that they were going to get rid of it and replace it with a test match tournament. Hmm. and the pushback against the ICC was so strong that they immediately went back on that. They were like, (laughs) okay, never mind. Yeah, we're not going to do that. We're just going to stick with the Champions Trophy. Uh, And so this year, the build-up to the Champions Trophy was the biggest it's ever been because it's probably going to be the most competitive in that the eight teams that were all invited are all should be there, and they're all really solid, and there's a lot of stars playing. 
um, because these cricketers are becoming more famous. So it's a who's who of cricket right now um, at this tournament. And it's happening in England, so it's happening in the birthplace of cricket, so to speak. And um, the final will actually be in the Oval, which is interesting is the Oval is just so old and worn down, but that's where they're going to have the final. So that'll be kind of fun too. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of interesting. When will the finals be? Uh, it's about two week tournament and they're in day three. Hmm. So in the next week. Yeah. That, int- that, that question of who defines sports is interesting to me. Like, do the fans define it? Do the players define it? Do the institutions do so? Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's particularly interesting for me in the cycling world because there is no, like all of the races are run independently of one another. And so there's very little right. overarching body. Right. Um, and it, so, is, hmm. it was interesting to me. So all what I read about cricket comes from England or Australia news sources. Um so I'm guilty of not checking out um, any Southeast Asian sources. Uh, but the coverage of this tournament is so much more tuned in and buttoned up than it was for the IPL. Hmm. As in, these riders are just so much more interested in the Champions Trophy than they were the Indian Premier League. Um, I would admit, I don't know if that's the same in India. Maybe it is. It's still their national team, obviously, so that's a big deal, but... Uh, it just has a different vibe to it than the Indian Premier League does. Did you um, did you see the list of uh, 100 most famous or celebrities in the world or whatever it was that I did, ESPN yeah. did? Yeah. Um, I, I was rather surprised to not see uh, uh, your boy Slingo Malinga on there. Yeah, he. I, I, I make him a bigger deal than he is. <laughs> I think. But he's like, I feel like his, uh, every time I see a picture of something in Sri Lanka, there's a billboard with his face on it in the background. <laughs> that might be true, but yeah. Um, was there a cricketer in the top 10? I don't think there was. Not the top 10, but there were some pretty high up, and they weren't the names I expected to be so high up. There was a couple of Pakistani guys were like the highest, I think. Yeah, Kohli. Um, mm mm-hmm. Um, but he's that's an Indian guy, um, and then Dhoni, I think, was uh, Kohli was 13, I think Dhoni was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think of all the stuff, I was I, that was a fascinating list. I love looking at it. Is that Cristiano Ronaldo has 1.3 billion Instagram followers? <laughs> like, what in the world? <laughs> Like, how is that a thing? Well, there's some really interesting... Well, I mean, I think Phil got all the press. Like, why the hell is Phil up here when he doesn't have social media? Um, and it's really just because he's got endorsements out the wazoo, KPMG or whoever is paying him a fortune, it seems. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting to me, like, um, how high Kaka and Kai Nishikuri yeah. were. Yeah. Uh, particularly Nishikuri, because I think that that's... Uh, the regionalism at play is huge with that. So it's just right. fascinating. Also that just how, how much money and importance there is on tennis outside of the U S where I think tennis just seems like a, a weird thing to us. Yeah. I was just in a Japanese airlines uh, airport and there were 
he has like a the Japanese airline uh, sponsors him, and he's on the side of all their planes. Hmm. <laughs> it's like wow. I mean, there were like 25 planes in a row, and it was his face across all of them. It looked really weird. <laughs> it's amazing. So it's like he's like the eighth best tennis player in the world, and he's on like 25 airplanes. That's <laughs> 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 pretty funny. Oh, wow. Well, you want to talk about masculinity in sports? Yeah, let's do it. So this week we've chosen to take on toxic masculinity in sports. I don't know about you, Kyle, but this came to my mind, particularly with all of the stupid beanball stuff that's happening in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I knew when you suggested that title that was where it was coming from. But it happened just after um, – I suggested this, I think, just after – what's the name of the guy that threw it, Bryce Harper? Um, I don't anyway. know. Uh, that ridiculous thing. Uh, and just the, I think I must have watched a couple of sports centers where they were talking about it. Uh, and one of the things that really intrigued me was a, that this is like two years old and this is still bubbling in this jackass's mind. Um, right. I don't feel bad about calling him that by the way. Um, and also like how the rest of his team kind of was like, you gotta be kidding me with this on some level. Right. Um, oh, it's, uh, baseball seems rife with it these days. Well, it's a good example, I think, to tease out what a definition is, because the way I understand toxic masculinity is the way in which one forms an identity through sport that compromises healthy, mature adult behavior. Hmm. And so by being taught to be a certain way, by being taught to play the game a certain way, by being taught to abide by certain social norms and mores, one arrives at a place to where they will hold a two-year grudge and throw a baseball at another human being and think that that's appropriate and cool and then stand behind it and say, like, yeah, this is how the world works and should work, Um, which shows a complete lack of understanding of what human beings are and could be and are capable of as mature healthy adults psychologically that is um, so i think that's how i understand toxic masculinity hmm. does that track for you it does i i want to have a little different nuances i think that um are included in the way i've kind of conceptualized it which is well first i'll share that um my definition was kind of turned on its head a little bit this morning because i was watching uh, highlights of the ncaa soccer or softball uh, from mm-hmm. yesterday uh, mm-hmm. and some of the female coaches for the UCLA team were exist- exhibiting what I would define as uh, uh, characteristics of toxic masculinity but um, mm-hmm. generally speaking I think I would say it's uh, people that have been taught there's a particular way or belief uh, that there's a particular way to do things and uh, the way to act uh, and that that way is focused on strength uh, and never backing down from things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what happened in the uh, in the in the softball game was that somebody got thrown out, and uh, they wanted an obstruction called at home, and it turned into a whole thing where one of the assistant coaches came out and like chest bumped the umpire, the lead umpire back, and uh, and then after the match, the lead manager for the UCLA team 
was like the real important thing here is that our assistant manager had our players back. I'm like, no, right. that's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, and that, so. that, how, how absurd that, so I was just thinking about this too in light of uh, Edison Volquez's no hitter last night. That's his seventh team. Hmm. And so you're telling me if you've been on seven teams and you're with a team for two weeks and someone on that team gets beamed, that you're going to be excited about going out there and fighting for this idiot? <laughs> like, no, that's so contrived. There's no way that's reality. Um, and you mentioned the characteristic of strength. I, I had a list. Um, I put some other... Uh, things uh, alongside that I said physicality in general in general uh, toughness being a emotional um, rigidity uh, and then maybe just kind of like an overall meanness when mm. it comes in contact with uh, the objective of winning that one can sacrifice civility in the name of winning, and therefore is evidence of toxic masculinity. Hmm. Yeah, so some words that I would just add are, um, I think tribalism and loyalty play into it to a mm, large degree. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think there's the concept of retribution is celebrated. Um, mm -hmm. Anger and frustration are kind of not, uh, I wouldn't say they're celebrated, but they're certainly not um, considered negatives uh and there's a heavy dose of trying to control things in there as well mm -hmm. well then let's let's you mentioned the gender part of it um i was wondering if uh do we need to rethink um or i don't even i'm past that probably we do need to rethink uh just calling it toxic masculinity um and i I struggle with this one, man, because I come in contact with so I come in contact with it so often. Coaching girls soccer, hmm. uh, as in, I find myself. My first reaction often is to fall back on the toxic masculinity that I was raised with, because like when I'm in a competitive environment, it is readily available in my mind to like latch on to pieces of it. Uh, that I was raised with and uh, I, there's such a culture around hyper competitive sports that um, toxic masculinity seems to be really interwoven and just really embedded in the fabric of our hyper competitive sports culture. And uh, if women are abiding by or latching onto the same things, is it still toxic masculinity or is it just, uh, I was thinking of the term like just being a toxic jock, not necessarily having it be gendered like that. Or is it worth having a designation between the two? That's an interesting question because I, like on some level, I do think it's important for us that I think that some of the importance in the term comes from noting that this is where I think this really comes from is a... Um, a misidentification of what it means to be a man. Um, mm -hmm. And then that being portrayed across sports because sports are considered, even when women are playing them to be 
of environment for men more often than not. Um, mm. So, you know, I think that I don't, I don't know. Like, I want to say yes. I think we should ungender the term or phrase, but at the same time, I think that we perhaps risk losing uh, our understanding of where some of this problem comes from if we do that. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, because it is male created and it was created in a male environment and was perpetuated and uh, institutionalized all within male environments uh, entirely. Hmm. Where else do you think besides baseball beaning each other? Um, I mean, it's it's so prevalent. It's hard to stop coming up with uh, examples. But I think, you know, teams that stand behind teammates that have committed a sexual assault or um, fighting in hockey, the incredible prevalence of uh, homosexual insults um, and mm-hmm. hazing. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, it's interesting that the. Um, the number of times that people call each other the F word on a sports field is really fascinating, especially because I think outside of that environment, a lot of those players are, would be uncomfortable using that same term. But when they get in mm-hmm. the heat of that competition, it's somehow that gender note comes into it again. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, I think my other big, two other big questions I had is, uh, is there um, something about the nature of particular sports that create more space for it as compared to other sports? Hmm. As in, does baseball have more space for toxic masculinity because of the, the way the game is played versus something like tennis or golf? So I think, I think that it, it does differ from sport to sport, but I would push back a little bit. Um, first off, I want to say that one of the things that I think is true that I think plays into this is that we as a society view sports as the pinnacle of manliness in some ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like in order to be good at sports, you're supposed to exhibit the qualities that are most manly. And those are these incredibly regressive things that we seem to think fill that, fill that role. Um, but I think that it's often about uh, how long the game has been around and how the institutions react to things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, like baseball has been around forever. And so I think that it has a fan base and it has an institution that's stuck in a different era to some degree, but also like the punishments for this stuff is ludicrous. And same with hockey, mm-hmm. like these guys get in fights and they get 10 minutes in the penalty box at most. Um, mm-hmm. And in baseball, you know, he's going to shit four games. Four games doesn't matter. You know, if you get in a fight, like throw them out of the season, throw them out of the league. I don't know, but the institutions are allowing it to be that way because I think the institutions think uh, on some level that that's what the sport should be because they've bought into the whole narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, I, I will just push one more and say, I think, it's often the sports that we don't think of are perhaps as masculine as anything else. Um, so I think that golf doesn't manifest in the same way, but I think it's still mm-hmm. there to a large degree. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Uh, and same with, you know, to go back to my cycling, uh, I often find it really humorous how these guys that are like the skinniest athletes on the planet are get so pissed off at one another. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like yeah. They, they these guys that have no arm muscles fighting one another just kind of cracks me up. But it's it's definitely there. Like there's this, there's a real chauvinism in the in the cycling world. One of my favorite. Um, things to uh, imagine and kind of ruminate on when I'm around the golf course is uh, you get to it's often played in foursomes so you get these four really hyper masculine wealthy successful rich tough athletic guys together and they're out there to prove their manhood and compete and gamble and drink or whatever and they all hit their first tee shots and then they all walk they all walk over and they get in these little tiny buggies <laughs> <laughs> and drive off together and i always think about the musical oklahoma and driving in the tiny little surrey with the fringe on top i just think of like that is really non-masculine to get in a little golf cart with your buddy <laughs> but uh Someone but, hasn't pointed that out to him yet. Well, but it's so funny because it's, I mean, like, not to call you out on this, but to call you out a little bit, like, that's definitely a, something that they're projecting. Like, well, who's to say that the, it's not masculine to get in a little cart and ride around a, car, a course? Uh, Precisely. I'm, I'm using their worldview. Like, I'm uh, appropriating it and saying, like, if y'all took a second and thought about what you were doing, you would recognize that this does not fit with the image you're trying to live into. Um, oh, but this, uh, I, and I wonder how much of it, um, you know, we often talk about meekness and weakness and, you know, the male is the stronger sex and sports by its very identity. The whole goal is to rectify and cure your weaknesses. And so I wonder uh, like on a societal scale, what the impact of uh, like how hyper-masculine these sports are plays into the idea of how we view weakness and strength on a societal level. Hmm. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, it makes me think about the role of winning. Is it hmm. like, are all of those things filtering from the role that winning plays in it? Because it's like we forget about the other values along the way. If winning's the ultimate goal, we're like, oh, yeah, all those life lessons, those are important. But really, kids, you got to win this game today because we really don't like this other team. <laughs> so whatever you have to do to win, do it. Hmm. Well, I think um, identity plays into it hugely as well um, in terms of – I think that part of what – makes it so troubling for me is that um, this what happens when you have something like this is that these athletes wind up involving so much of their identity in that winning and doing well at the sport uh, and projecting strength that when any kind of weakness comes in um, mm -hmm. they don't know how to respond to it and so I think this is you know the the um, absurd men's right men's rights activists of the world um, mm -hmm. right always complaining about the male suicide rate which i will agree is much higher than the female and that's a problem but that's mm -hmm. i would point back to this ridiculous idea of what 
masculinity and manliness is and how we can never live up to it. And therefore these people don't know, literally don't know how to live uh, when their identity is shattered, Mm -hmm. which is, I think what we're seeing to some degree with tiger, you could argue. Absolutely. Well, and so that takes me back to the question too, of like, does a sport perpetuate it more than another sport? And so, for example, I'm thinking, so at the University of Alabama, uh, football is really important for the identity of that school and for that university and for that fan base. Everyone needs that football team to do well. And for that football team to do well, you need these young men to be mean and you need them to be tough and you need them to be hyper-masculine and not think about too much or get too emotional about things or um, uh, I'm like, you know, stretching this to make a point. And so I'm wondering if it, it's these larger institutions and this obsession with winning paired with the nature of the sport that are creating these environments. Hmm. I, I mean, I do, I do think that there are sports that are more prone to this. I mean, I, we talked about rugby earlier and how I mentioned mm-hmm. how it is. Like at the end, it's the exertion of your will and strength against the other team's will and strength. Like um, in my mind, I know there are probably rugby players and coaches who would disagree with me, but I think uh, you can. There's an argument to be made that strategy plays less of a role in rugby than most other sports. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, that then the more that you're focused in that area, the more likely you are to wind up with, you know, uh, situations like. Uh, Jonathan Simmons and Richie Incognito with the Dolphins and um, mm-hmm. stuff, and so I think even baseball I think falls into that as well because I don't I don't know as much about what the workout regime of a baseball player looks like, but given how they look on TV, it seems to involve mostly weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, I'm good, Darren. Unless you got anything else. I don't think so. It just uh, it interferes with my ability to enjoy a game when I see uh, men who feel like they have to act in a particular way in order to redeem themselves as men. And I get, I suppose that really goes for not just sports, but everything in life, because it really does come down everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, and maybe depending on how you look at it, depressing or inspiring or hopeful uh, to think about, you know, what could be as we get better at educating ourselves and those that are coming after us uh, about how to have conversations about gender and identity that, Hmm. um, you know, I'm I'm just thinking of uh, the NFL players that have come out after their playing career. Um, and how the first drafted gay player is going to be playing in the next season. So it, it's, it, it's hopeful maybe that there's um, – we're at the – maybe just at the very beginning, first wave or, or first page of a, of a different story that uh, it may not always have to be that way. Mm-hmm. Well, good deal. You want to hit me with your I think piece? Absolutely.
All week, I was planning on making sure to be in a place where I could watch the Champions League final. I found a cool pub on the west coast of Ireland that advertised itself as a place that shows sporting events. I was all set up to watch the game, but before the game started, the owner had the TV set to a Gaelic football match. Crowley was playing Dublin. And so a bit on Gaelic football. Gaelic football is the most popular, widely followed, amateur-only sport in the world. The players are strictly controlled in that they can never receive any money for playing the sport. And yet, 80,000 people attended last year's final. And technically, there are over 2,000 registered Gaelic football clubs, and each club has a mathematical chance to make it to the finals. It's all really impressive. The sport itself, its popularity, and its dedication to amateurism. And so when a notification on my phone told me that the Champions League final had kicked off and not one person in the bar besides me looked alarmed that the channel wasn't changed to the soccer game, well, I was pretty baffled. But then I realized I was experiencing something that is impossible to imagine in the United States. A room full of people would have rather watched some amateurs play their country's most popular sport instead of the overdone soccer match. I did not ask the owner to flip over to the soccer game. And that's how it ended. Hmm. Well, now I'm intrigued to know where the money goes. Yeah, I am too. I was thinking a lot about that, and it's my next question as well. But none of them get paid. Yeah. They all have regular jobs. Do you think that if that were the case, uh, sports would be more enjoyable for everyone? Yes. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Yes, I do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. What do you got? All right. So we're expecting a girl in September. I am now asking myself a lot of questions about what our relationship with these sports should be. The more I think about it, the more confused about it I get. There are serious problems that I think are clear. However, I see real potential for growth in our little one out there. In the end, I think that I think I will encourage my daughter to play sports, but I will also be quite happy if she chooses to forego them. Part of this is because I would like to be able to relate to her there. Uh, it would be an easy shared point of reference. However, I would be more than a little concerned if she wound up too deep in the youth sports world. I will support her no matter what she wants to do, but I really hope that that support never turns into something less positive. I'm concerned about my own ability to stay neutral, but I'm even more concerned about the toxic youth sports world and letting a young person get her identity too rolled up in their athletics. But at the same time, I'd also love to see her play basketball or soccer. I hear you. I do not have a child on the way, but that's a complex thing to think about. Um, When you have such a unique perspective. do you, does the idea of a college scholarship ever come into your mind? To, to be bluntly honest, what comes into my mind more than anything is the idea of her playing for the U.S. women's national team, which I think would be pretty fantastic, but will probably never happen. <laughs> That's an awesome thought. I love that. Man, I would get some cool tickets to those games. <laughs> I hope <laughs> 
we would uh when we retire we would just go travel around and watch a u.s women's team play everywhere yeah that would be so fun um yeah i i think about it in like um you know i got a lot of friends that have young kids now and those of them that are concerned like you are with the toxic world of youth sports but also recognize that and some of them already have kids that are showing like extreme athletic skill it's like i don't want them to get obsessed into this youth culture world but it also could mean like two hundred thousand (laughs) dollars and an education at a really good university Mm -hmm. so to what extent do we put up with this absurd world that they're growing up in in order to get a free education out of it at a top tier university Uh, is it worth it it's uh, it's really interesting sarah has a cousin who just graduated uh as valedictorian of the business school at virginia tech i don't know if that's technically right what she had the best gpa in the business school at tech Mm -hmm. and she's got a contract to go work for a major financial firm uh really intelligent young woman um Mm. and she played youth soccer her whole career i think had some d1 offers on the table but chose to instead of playing competitive soccer her senior year and pursuing that instead played youth soccer and then i'm not sure she played club or anything at virginia tech but Mm -hmm. was certainly not didn't go anywhere for scholarship and i think um she just decided she didn't enjoy it as much anymore and moved on and i think uh that's a pretty uh, incredible and self-aware decision for a 16 or 17 year old to make. Indeed. I suppose in the end, I would just hope I would be able to empower our child to be able to make that decision when the time comes. Right. Well, good deal, sir. I'll let you go. Enjoy the beautiful Irish countryside. I hope it's raining on you so that you don't get to enjoy it too much. It's absolutely pouring right now. (laughs) And has been for like six hours now. (laughs) We'll just know that it's wonderful here in Roanoke and uh, the sun is shining. I think my blinds are closed at the moment, but um, I think it's nice outside. Uh, (laughs) All right, man. Cool. Thanks, dude. Thank you. Well, thank you all for listening to another hour here. Uh, you've listened to a bunch of dudes or a couple of dudes talk about masculinity because, uh, you know, that's how we do. Um, but come back next week and we'll talk about something else interesting. Uh, and I promise, uh, no, I can't promise anything. So just come back next week. Thanks. <laughs>